1: wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Craig, Kinway, Hefe, Jennings, Drunken Dak, Two-Gun Tony, The Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Samuel and Adam. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today we're going to introduce the villains of our story. Not just our current narrative of William Dampier in Southeast Asia, but the villains of our whole overarching story. The big bad of pirates and piracy. And it's not pirates. It's not the Royal Navy, nor is it the Windward Fleet. If I could be forgiven a Lord of the Rings analogy here... Those two institutions would be the Grima Wormtongue and sauromon of this tale. Villains, to be sure, but pawns and occasional rivals of Sauron, the big faceless evil that casts a shadow over everything in the world. And if the topic of today's episode is Sauron, the big bad of Lord of the Rings, the Spanish Empire would be Morgoth. My fellow Tolkien nerds know who Morgoth is, and if you don't, you probably don't much care. In Tolkien's legendarium, he's the devil. He's the one who corrupted the elves to create the orcs, and he's important to this analogy because Sauron, the topic of today's show, rose to power following the fall of Morgoth. He rose in the ruins of the empire that Morgoth built. For all of you whose eyes just glazed over, allow me to explain. Spain and her empire were responsible for many of the evils of the early modern world. Slavery and genocide and the crushing weight of empire on untold millions of indigenous people. And the topic of today's story rose from the crumbling ruin of the Spanish and Portuguese empires. And like Sauron in The Lord of the Rings in The Third Age, they were faceless. They had no monarch, they had no president upon which all of their evils could be blamed. Instead, they built a system of corporate, bureaucratic, faceless anonymity. This is episode 125, Pirates Incorporated, part one. We are, of course, talking about the East India Company, the English East India Company today, and we're talking about the English because they came first, but we will move on to the Dutch very soon. To begin, let's discuss, very, very briefly, the history of business in the European sphere, or rather, the history of organized business, and these are going to be extremely broad strokes because I am way out of my comfort zone on this. If you take it back to ancient Rome, They had organized group of artisans and merchants called Collegium. Among the most famous and relevant of these was the Corpus Naviculariorum. They were a guild that specialized in long-distance naval shipping. In many ways, they controlled the Mediterranean. When the Roman Empire started to crumble, the Collegium system began to dissipate. Throughout much of Europe, trade reverted to small independent operators. However, Europe began to pick up the pieces, and by the high Middle Ages or so, we see the rise of what's called the guild system. The guilds looked similar to the collegium, but they were usually smaller in scope, more localized, and they tended to hold their secrets very close. There are some scholars who would argue that they actually impeded progress by keeping their secrets to themselves. But the guilds are where we get that tiered apprentice, journeyman, and master system. If we are following large maritime trade organizations, and we are, we should mention the Hanseatic League. They, during the high and into the late Middle Ages, controlled Baltic sea trade. They defended that sea against pirates, as well as their ships and cargo and harbors. The Hanseatic League was responsible for making northern Germany a ton of money. They and the other guilds played a prominent role in building the continental middle class, that, some would say, led to the Reformation. We're going to focus more on that schism next time, but for now we can break it down like this. By the late 1500s you have your Protestant territories, your German, Danish, Dutch, Nordic, and English areas, and they were largely using a system based upon guilds and the investment of capital into private ventures. That was opposed to Spain and Portugal and France and Italy, the Catholic kingdoms of Europe, who favored a system that was called, derisively at first, mercantilism. That split is only another layer on top of the cultural and religious divide that we've explored on this show many times, but again, put a pin in that for next time. For now, we're going to turn to the late 1500s in Elizabethan England. We've talked before, quite a bit, in fact, about why Queen Elizabeth employed the use of privateers for the English navy. England was poor, too poor to do things the way that, say, Spain did them, with a top-down sort of royal navy that was filled with officers who were paid by the crown, officers who were usually chosen for their name and could often be completely incompetent. They were the sons of nobles and dignitaries, not the sons of sailors. The English crown couldn't afford any of that, but they could afford the ink and paper necessary to sign letters of retribution, licenses that would allow talented sailors' sons to go out privateering. And as we'll see, the best of these, the most talented and most successful, rose to positions of power and prominence in Elizabeth's England. The Queen had a similar approach to empire and to trade, Elizabeth would sign royal charters to form companies. Now there were two main types of companies founded here. There were the trade companies who bought the rights directly from the crown to trade with Russia or the Ottoman Empire or Spain or really almost anywhere. But they bought a monopoly on that trade. And then there were the companies that were designed to settle colonies. Most of these came a little bit later, but there were a few in Elizabethan England, like the Virginia Company, named for the Virgin Queen. Both of these types of companies are what were called joint stock companies. And in fact, most modern companies today are joint stock companies at their core. It essentially means that the people with capital to spare can invest in one of those ventures and expect a profitable return. The voyage of, say, Charles Swan and the Signet, that was based upon a joint-stock venture that had investors back in England. These sort of companies were all the rage in Elizabethan England. The Queen, in lieu of a fat treasury, empowered talented people to build the British Empire. She also empowered some not-so-talented people who had the money to buy a license, but we don't remember their names. Those who we do remember invested their own capital to set up colonies and trade relations with foreign nations. This wasn't capitalism, but it it was kind of a proto-capitalism. However, it was a Protestant policy that was born out of Elizabethan necessity, as was so much during her time on the throne. The kings who would follow the Stuart dynasty, who were all about that Catholic life, would shift to a much more mercantilist economic policy. But that's far in the future. For now, we're in Elizabeth's England, in a wild west of capital investment in bold voyages that have the potential for fantastic returns, all of it at the expense of a crumbling Iberian empire. We started this show more or less in the Elizabethan age when we were talking about Sir Francis Drake. Following our discussion on Drake, I made a decision. I anguished over it a bit, but I decided to skip ahead into the good stuff, you know, the West Indies and Henry Morgan, the stories of the Buccaneers. And I'm glad I did, I really wanted to talk about all that, but I did skip over a ton of interesting connective tissue. Today, we're going to rectify that. If you think back to Francis Drake's first major voyage, it wasn't one of his, it was under another commander, an Englishman named John Hawkins. That's the voyage, the famous voyage of the Jesus of Lubbock. It was the voyage on which a crew of English privateers circumvented that Spanish mercantilist system. They captured slaves from the Portuguese and sold them at a steep discount to the Spanish colonists in Mexico and terra firma. They made a boatload of money, several boatloads of money in fact, but they were attacked by the Spanish under a flag of truce, and when they returned to England, they did so in tatters. Still, they made a massive profit, and in doing so, they gained Queen Elizabeth's personal interest. John Hawkins, the man in charge of that voyage, was, in some respects, the father of modern English naval tradition. Maybe he would be better described as the grandfather. You know, Admiral Pepys should probably be the father... But so much of what was to come stemmed from Hawkins, both legal traditions and illegal ones. Hawkins would go on to pen a memoir about his voyage called A True Declaration of the Troublesome Voyage of John Hawkins to the West Indies. That book was something of a primer for the gentlemen adventurers, for the men who would go on to become a generation of Elizabethan privateers. And when I say privateers, I do, of course, mean pirates who were sanctioned by the Queen. Francis Drake was the most famous of these, but he was far from the only one. Now, Drake and Hawkins were related. Drake was Hawkins' second cousin, probably, but both would eventually earn knighthood and become admirals. In Elizabeth's England, this was the best way to become an admiral. It showed that you had the influence and the know-how to raise a fleet, and the money to do so should, say, I don't know, the Spanish decide to invade. John Hawkins went on to serve as naval treasurer and as admiral of the narrow seas. That post put him in command of the fleet that guarded the English Channel and the North Sea between England and the Netherlands. He received this post at the outbreak of the Anglo-Spanish War and it turned out to be a fairly important position in a time when his nation was at war with Spain in the English Channel and in the North Sea between England and the Netherlands. With Hawkins serving as naval treasurer, Francis Drake took over American operations. He led the famous 1571 raid on Nombre de Dios, which we talked about and which inspired generations of English pirates and treasure hunters. On his next major voyage, the Voyage of Circumnavigation, Drake was accompanied by one of his cousins, a nephew of Admiral Sir John Hawkins, named William Hawkins. William served on board Golden Hind, and was fast-tracked for command. He was a talented seaman with a good name. William Hawkins also served with Drake on his next major venture, the 1586 Voyage of Privateering in the Americas and they were joined by another one of their cousins, a man named Richard Hawkins. Richard Hawkins would captain a galleot on that voyage, which was a proper position for the son of the treasurer of the Navy, John Hawkins. Most of the officer corps on board most of these voyages was in some way closely connected. They were all from Devon, and many of them were family members which made it all the worse when the crew began to suffer the effects of scurvy. Drake was feeling the very early effects, but the two Hawkins boys were not doing well. So Drake decided to make landfall near some friendly Indians who would treat his men. They gave them a concoction of mint and lime and chuchuasi bark. The stuff worked, but it tasted awful. So Drake added some sugar probably molasses actually and the men all got better in order to preserve the concoction for the rest of his voyage drake added some rum to it and the men found that this tasted pretty good and of course this is the origin of the drink known as the el drake and the ultimate origin of the mojito according to legend richard hawkins life was saved on that voyage by that drink some years later When he was a naval admiral and one of the most powerful maritime forces in England, he would suggest that drink, suggest the mix of lime and mint and rum to combat scurvy on the high seas. This became an English naval tradition. Eventually, some years later, it would become official policy, and it was also the basis of the nickname that was given to the English people, Limey. In 1588, The Lord Howard Effingham, High Admiral and Privy Councillor to the Queen, arrived in Plymouth. The Spanish were massing a fleet, and rumor was they were planning to invade England, and he was there to command the forces that would defend England against them. The High Admiral wrote of the men that he met there at Plymouth, "'My good Lord, there is here the gallantest company of captains, soldiers, and mariners that I think ever was seen in England.'
0: Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies?
1: included the Vice Admiral of the entire English Defense Force, Sir Francis Drake. It also included the Rear Admiral, who served a very important position in this battle, Admiral Sir John Hawkins. There were others. There was the captain of the warship, Griffin, who was William Hawkins, and the captain of another of the Queen's warships, Richard Hawkins. Everyone who was anyone in the naval world was at this battle. Of course, England won that affair, thanks to some helpful weather in large part, but the Spanish were repelled. William and Richard Hawkins rose to positions of some prominence in the English maritime world, as did many of the other men who fought in that battle. Another of the gallantest company of captains, soldiers, and mariners that ever were seen in England was another lad from Devon another privateer, another man on the fringes of piracy that was turned, through Elizabeth's grace, into a gentleman adventurer. His name was Sir Walter Raleigh. Raleigh was, even more so than Drake, I would argue, the consummate gentleman adventurer. He was one part pirate and scoundrel, one part explorer, and one part courtly romantic. He's the kind of character that 19th-century poets would write ballads about, a gentleman in disguise, the sort of man who fooled the bumbling Spanish lord and who wooed their wives for a night of steamy passion, only to run off in the morning with a bag of rubies and gold. At least that's the image that Sir Walter Raleigh cultivated. His personal vessel, his commissioned ship, the Ark Raleigh, was the flagship in the 1588 battle against the Spanish Armada. But Raleigh wasn't commanding his ship, he'd in fact given it to his queen. She'd rechristened her the Ark Royale and given command over to the Lord High Admiral. The rumors that surrounded Sir Walter and Queen Elizabeth were many. And, you know, he flirted with her at court, as was the tradition, but it probably never went any farther than that. He was popular, but he never appears to have been a favorite, and not the sort of man that she invited for her late-night gaming sessions. Raleigh was, of course, integral in the Virginia Company, and in the founding of the New England colonies. Raleigh was most definitely a Queen's man, but I think, at heart, he was a pirate. In accordance with the image he chose to cultivate, Raleigh wooed one of the queen's attendants, one of her ladies-in-waiting, and got her with child. However, he did marry her, but they did so in secret. See, Elizabeth demanded all marriages of any of her ladies-in-waiting be approved by her personally, and Elizabeth was known to make her ladies-in-waiting wait for it, in one case as long as ten years. But Sir Walter and The lady in question, Bess Throckmorton, didn't have that sort of time. She would, of course, start to show signs of pregnancy very shortly. So they were married in secret, but when Elizabeth found out about it, both of them were tossed in the Tower of London. Elizabeth did have something of a temper about this. Some have suggested that it's because she was denied the pleasure of a romance herself, and perhaps there's something to that. And then, in 1592, two major events took place. The first of these seemed, at first glance, to be nothing at all, almost a nonentity. It involved a group of intrepid English sailors whom we have not yet met. James Lancaster, George Raymond, and Samuel Foxcroft. They were merchants working for the Levant Company when they received special permission from the Crown to sail for the Indies. It wasn't a voyage that anyone, from their company to the Queen, had much faith in at all. The Indies were really far away, and the English had no support mechanism there. Instead, they would face Portuguese ports and ships that would be more likely to attack or arrest them should they run into the Portuguese. Still, those three men set sail in their three ships Penelope, Merchant Royal, and Bonaventure. They rounded the Cape and made their way across the Indian Ocean, and in February 1592 they careened in Zanzibar, and by April they had reached Malaysia. In Malaysia, many of the crewmen threatened to mutiny and kill the officers if they did not return home, so they did so. They lost a lot of men on that voyage, and even though they did bring back a few spices, no one really got rich. They did, however, make some contacts along the way, A couple of sultans, a couple of rajahs, some local leaders. You know, no big deal at the time. This whole voyage appeared to have been something of a bust. At that same time, Queen Elizabeth's personal champion, her own personal knight at court, petitioned her for the release of Sir Walter Raleigh. That knight was George Clifford, the Earl of Cumberland. And the Earl had a mind to steal himself some Spanish gold. The Earl wasn't a naval man. He was a knight, horses and armor and jousting and sword fighting, that kind of thing. In fact, he was chosen to be the Queen's personal champion because of his talent at the tilts. He wanted Sir Walter Raleigh to lead this expedition he had planned. And I kind of suspect here that the Earl was using this opportunity to give his Queen a good reason to release Sir Walter Raleigh. And I suspect that the Queen knew that. I imagine she silently thanked him for giving her that opportunity without losing any face. Then again, this fleet was a big deal. There was a lot of money behind it, and Sir Walter may have simply been the best choice available to command it. I mean, Sir Francis Drake might have been better, but at the moment he was away in the Americas. Now this fleet was organized by the Earl, and he had a lot of his own money in it, but it was one of those joint stock affairs. A lot of people had money in this venture. Everyone who was anyone, except for Drake, in the naval circles of England had a stake in it. And the formation of this fleet was kind of a key moment. If we were to use another Lord of the Ring analogy, this would be the Council of Elrond. First, we need to talk about the ships in the fleet, more specifically their design. They were race-built galleons, or Razi galleons. The Rosie Galleon was smaller and lighter and faster than the traditional Spanish Galleon, but it had a lot more firepower than the frigates which would eventually replace them. The design was thought up by John Hawkins and Francis Drake and brought to the table by Hawkins himself. Now Admiral Hawkins wasn't there. He was busy being the treasurer of the Navy, but he had a substantial stake in the venture, perhaps second only to the earl. His son Richard was there, though, in his bright and shiny new galleon, the dainty. I don't think that William Hawkins was there, at least there's no mention of him being there, so I suspect he was probably with Francis Drake in America at this time. The fleet consisted of a total of sixteen ships. Sir Walter Raleigh was an overall command on board the Queen's ship Garland. Raleigh named John Burrow Vice-Admiral. Who sailed on board the ship Roebuck. As we said, Richard Hawkins sailed dainty, while a Captain Newport sailed the Golden Dragon. That's a not-unsubtle nod to Drake's The Golden Hind. A captain named Samuel Purchase sailed another of the Queen's personal vessels, the Foresight, and the Earl himself brought in three ships, Prudence, Tiger, and Samson. Once everyone was provisioned and ready, the fleet set sail on 6th may 1592 with a southwesterly heading the very next day when england was barely out of sight lookouts spotted an english ship coming up from behind it was a fast moving pinnace named disdain under the command of one martin frobisher frobisher had a letter from the queen for sir walter raleigh god i love queen elizabeth And this is part of the reason I suspect she knew exactly what the Earl was up to when he asked her to release Raleigh, and I suspect she did not inform the Earl of this part of the plan. Raleigh had been out of port for a day, a single day, and this letter arrives from the Queen admonishing him for gallivanting off on this crazy mission— I mean, there's a squadron of Spanish ships massing off the coast. What do you think you're doing out there, Raleigh? Get back here and defend your queen. And remember that Raleigh was only out of prison in the first place because Elizabeth's champion begged her to release him for this mission. And here's the thing. There actually was a Spanish fleet massing out there, but they were formed specifically to deal with this fleet under Walter Raleigh. Nobody knew what their plan was, but they had no intention of invading England. They were intending to sail out to combat this fleet. But the Queen did fear that invasion was imminent, and she wanted Raleigh at court where he belonged, and Queen Elizabeth always got what she wanted. And, you know, what was Sir Walter's wife doing during all of this? Well, she was still in the Tower of London for the detestable crime of marrying this guy that the Queen demanded be at court. Elizabeth is just the best. Raleigh gave his final orders to split the fleet up between Frobisher and Burrow. Frobisher would be given ultimate command with Burrow still serving as vice-admiral, but really it was two fleets now. The Earl of Cumberland, with his ships, sailed with Burrow, and then Raleigh returned to England on the command of his queen. The fleets were hit by a pretty terrible storm shortly after splitting up, so then they had to reconnect to see if anyone needed aid. Some repairs were needed, but the ships were intact. They did stick together for a couple of weeks after that, which proved to be a smart decision, as they spotted a 600-ton Spanish galleon called the Santa Clara. They chased her down and engaged in a heated battle, but the Santa Clara fell into English hands. Now, it wasn't a rich prize, it was hauling mostly iron, but it was a powerful ship. They incorporated it into their fleet, under the Earl, in fact, and then the fleet split up once again. Frobisher had a smaller contingent, but he headed south to hopefully intercept some treasure galleons that were rumored to be coming up from the East Indies. He didn't have any success in that. The only prize of any real consequence he found was a flyboat, a tiny thing. But it was carrying one important passenger. That passenger was a messenger, who was zipping up and down the coasts of Africa and Portugal, relaying messages between the naval headquarters at Cadiz and the incoming fleet of East India treasure ships. After about two weeks of torture this messenger finally spilled the beans. He had news of that fleet that he gave to Frobisher and of the Spanish armada that was massing to destroy all of these gentlemanly English privateers. This was important information. Frobisher knew that everyone needed to know about this, so he shot off a messenger ship to let the other men know about this incoming treasure fleet and of her rumored route and of the incoming Spanish armada that word never made it to Burrow or the Earl. However, it was too late for Frobisher to send off another messenger as he was chased back to England by some Spanish coast guard. But they weren't out of luck entirely. Through one of those amazing twists of fortune, the second half of this fleet, the one under Burrow and the Earl, had made their way to the southern Azores. That's why they weren't found by the messenger. Nobody knew they were going to be out there, and they were out there because they'd spotted a Spanish caravel. They'd given her chase, but they were unable to capture the caravel before the ship made an emergency landing on one of the nearby islands. The crew disembarked, carrying as much cargo as they could, and then they set the caravel ablaze and ran inland. However, Clifford sent a hundred men ashore and did so in time to capture a few of the lagging Portuguese sailors. Now, this wasn't about cargo. This was all about information. They may have missed that messenger from Frobisher, but this was better. These men, some of whom weren't Spanish or Portuguese but were instead North African slaves, told them everything. They told them about the massing Spanish armada, and they told them about the incoming Spanish and Portuguese treasure fleet. They learned that there were five Carracks headed for the Azores Islands, specifically for Flores Island, the northernmost island in the Azores. Those five carracks were the Santa Cruz, the Buen Jesus Admiral, Madre de Dios, San Bernardo, and San Cristoforo. This was... An amazing array of ships. All five of these vessels were unlike anything that England had to offer. Well, almost anything. They looked quite a bit like the flagship commissioned by King Henry VIII, the Henry Grace, de But that was a royal vessel, while these were just treasure carracks, and there were five of them. The greatest of these five was, in fact, probably the greatest ship in the entire Portuguese navy the Madre de Dios. She was a 32-gun vessel of 1,600 tons. That ship was a behemoth. I mean, it wouldn't be out of place in a 19th century dockyard. It wouldn't look out of place among the tall ships of the Napoleonic War or even the Civil War. And aside from a few changes in hull design, it looked a lot like the first first first-rate ships of the line that still wouldn't be around for another 70 years. It was a big ship, an impressive ship. The biggest difference between the Madre de Deus and the first-rate ships of the line that would follow some decades later was the number of guns on board. See, a first-rate ship of the line in the English Navy, or any European Navy, usually required at least 100 guns on board. But this Portuguese ship carried only 32. That was not an oversight. I mean... First of all, 32 guns is still an impressive array of firepower, especially in the 1500s. But those 70-odd missing guns were not there for a reason. Guns were heavy, and they took up a lot of room on board a ship, and that space was needed. The Madre de Dios was carrying treasure. Imagine how much treasure could be stored in the space that would normally be taken up by 70 large cannon, not to mention the stores of gunpowder and shot, and the men necessary to fire those cannon. So the English had their information. This fleet of treasure carracks was heading for Flores at the northern end of the Azores Islands. Naturally, with that kind of information in hand, Lord Clifford did what any reasonable commander would do in that position he sent his ships south. Those ships in the south got up to all sorts of mischief. They were raiding towns and capturing ships and generally causing a very loud and noticeable sort of ruckus. It was the sort of ruckus that would draw the eyes of a Spanish fleet that had been sent to deal with the pirates, the sort of ruckus that any respectable commander would be forced to respond to. They had to go down there to engage and fight and kill the pirates that were busy burning their way across their territory. Meanwhile, up to the north, Sir George Clifford, the Earl of Cumberland, was waiting. Next time, we're going to talk about what was, arguably, the greatest prize that any English privateer or pirate ever captured and we're going to discuss how the people who took that prize took a ship full of treasure and turned it into the greatest wealth production machine that the world has ever seen. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has given us a review or a rating wherever it is you listen to the show, and everyone who has recommended this show, online or in real life, without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. If you're interested in hearing some audiobook content of the Pirate Primary Sources, I've begun releasing audiobook chapters on Patreon. Right now, there are a couple out from The Bold Adventures of Captain Bartholomew Sharp by Basil Ringrose, and they're free to the public, I'm just choosing to release them on Patreon. They've been fun, and given me the opportunity to play with some audio editing that I don't usually do for the show. Give them a listen if you're interested, and let me know what you think. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au, that's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au, After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.